Welcome back, Ford Explorers. It doesn't pick okay. it up. Welcome back, Ford Explorers. Before we get into this week's episode, we just want to remind you that we do have social media. We have Instagram, we have Twitter, and we have a Patreon if you want to support us and get a subliminal shout-out. Most importantly, we have our hotline. Typically, we tell you a story, but we want you to tell us a story. So call us or text us at the hotline, tell us your story, and enjoy this week's episode. See you guys. <laughs> Welcome back to the SKT Spirit Hour, everybody, our Ford Explorers, our loyal Ford Explorers. Unless this is your first time, in which case, welcome. I'm the Colonel. This guy over here in the cloud is my son, Caleb. We make up the SKT Spirit Hour, where we talk about all the weird stuff in the world that we're interested in. Uh, today, we're talking about a fun one. But before we get to that, uh, for those who don't know, I own a very haunted bar, and Caleb works in that very haunted bar, because uh, that's what you do when you're a father. You employ your children. Uh, and every week, we do a little report. We do a little a little catch-up on how the ghosts have been doing. We have two ghosts. We have a tall guy, a tall, bald guy, and we've got a woman with long hair that really likes Caleb. Now, yes. Caleb, and I've got everybody caught up. Talk to us about the ghost report. So, uh, the lights were super active this week. Okay. Um, it was really funny. Our opening bartender was telling someone about how the lights change whenever <laughs> I'd get to work. Because mm-hmm. uh, I had just gotten there. And she was like, yeah, uh, the bar is haunted. The lights change whenever Caleb gets there. They, they really like Caleb. And as she's explaining that, all the lights in the building changed. <laughs> Not just the back ones, which usually oh, really? happen. All of them. Yeah, that very rarely happens. And they were all different ones, too. It's not like one signal got sent with, like, a remote to change it. Or they all purple or something. Yeah, the front ones were doing a fade. The back ones were doing, like, a step. And the middle ones were just solid white. Oh, weird. And someone was like, oh, cool. Like, you're not fucking around. Like, this place is haunted, haunted. And we're like, yeah. And Like we had that on a Switch or yeah. something. She's like, yeah. Yeah, this place is haunted. <laughs> and if you look at the back, a ghost will pop up. <laughs> exactly. It just swings across. <laughs> you with a sheet. Ooh. <laughs> nah, we can't do that where we live. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's something entirely different. Yeah. Um, that, and then that prompted uh, a couple of customers to be to share their own ghost stories, which was really funny. And we had this guy in yesterday who was like, yeah, I fully believe in ghosts. He was like, I got uh, chased out of a haunted cabin in the middle of Georgia uh, when I was there. And I went, it's in the middle of Georgia and you're a black guy. Are you sure it was a ghost? And he was like, that's a fair point. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. I once got called a faggot and chased out of Oklahoma by, you know, an impromptu Toby Keith fan club in a Dodge Durango. That was just homophobia. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. Uh, but uh, so all the lights change, and we actually had a couple that were like, we want to come back later tonight. They were there towards opening, and they're like, we want to come back later tonight to see if anything happens. And they did come back later that night, and the lights changed when they got there. Oh, weird. So, like, the ghost was showing off. <laughs> yeah, the ghost was flexing. <laughs> so you don't think I'm really here? Watch. Um, but other than that, we, of course, saw her in our peripheral a little bit in the back, um, and we had a customer be like, is someone back there? And we're like, no, technically not. Uh, and the back door, uh, the back door was latched because I was the last person to come in, and we heard it go, tink, tink. And that, that back door is a very heavy wooden yeah, back door. Yeah, they're big, like, barn doors. With um, 
a like very sturdy metal lock too, so you can hear it when it lo- like jostles and closes. Yeah, well, that's that's extra creepy. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, that's a good ghost report. Yeah, this, uh, this week's been very active. As always, at the end of the ghost report, I extend the invitation to any aspiring or professional ghost hunters. If you'd like to come take a look at the bar, just leave us a comment or reach out to us, and we'd be more than happy to let you come investigate. Because yeah. it's haunted as shit, and as this week's ghost report proves, they're willing to show off. Yeah, if, if challenged. Well, speaking of challenging. And sort of showing off. Today we're going to talk about uh, a, uh, a person, I, I stammer to say this, because I'm a big fan of Ted Kaczynski, and I understand that that's an unpopular statement. I can hear people in the future sort of recoiling when I say that. But I really, I am. I grew up on Edward Abbey. I have, you know, I lived in Tucson when Rodney Coronado was at the sort of the height of all of the the Earth First liberation stuff. I Eco-terrorism is one of the... F- like few forms of quote unquote, you know, terrorism, such a made up, I just don't like what you're doing sort of thing to say. But eco-terrorism is one that I kind of fuck with. You yeah. know, on the long list of cool crimes we have, it's up there with bank robberies. Cause like somebody <laughs> might get hurt, but you're probably doing the right thing. I was telling you uh, while we were doing research that one of my favorite um, eco-terrorists that I've ever seen was there was a guy in France, I want to say in 2012, maybe 2013, who got arrested because he was training ferrets to tear apart uh, airplanes. Love it. Because if you look, like, ferrets and weasels are notorious, especially there have been... Oh, do you ask anybody who's ever had a ferret? There are articles dating back to, like, the 40s about weasels tearing apart German cars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Anybody who's ever had a car in a barn with mice and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so he he was training weasels to get up into airplanes and tear them apart. Dude, I love it. I should also probably preface this by saying that I'm from Montana. I grew up on native land. I'm, you know, I, while I, when I was a kid, my mom got out of prison, which is probably why I love Ted Kaczynski so much. But we moved to Arizona and lived on the res down there. But um, in Mon- I'm from Montana. Lincoln, Montana, where Ted was caught and where he was living is like maybe an hour from my hometown. I'm from Great Falls, Montana. And I grew up going up to Whitefish with my grandmother. And when we would do that, or White Sulphur Springs, rather. And when we would do that, you'd go through Lincoln. There's one restaurant in Lincoln. Uh, Everybody eats at the same place. It's very local. It's very, you know, this story today, I'm just, I want to preface all this by saying that you hear me talk about it a lot, but when... People call themselves country. It usually pisses me off because what they refer to as having a big truck or some destructive thing. The country, everybody, the country is the country. It's the haulers and it's the rivers and it's the trees. It's the animals in it. It's the grass. It's all that stuff. So if you call yourself country and you don't give a fuck about that stuff, you drive around in a a lifted coal burning truck because you think it's a funny meme or whatever. You're not fucking country, Bubba. You're not. You might be whatever else, but you're not country. If you were country, you'd give a shit about where you'd from. You'd give a shit about the country. So I preface all this by saying that I am a country person. I grew up in a way that you could be described as a redneck. My dad was in country radio my whole life. I'm from Montana. I'm from, not that there is an urban Montana, but I'm from rural Montana. This idea that protecting the land on which you stand is outrageous to me. Ted is one of the truest Americans we've ever had. He's somebody who stood up when he saw bad things happening, like Americans are supposed to. Mm -hmm. He didn't sit idly by or change his opinion. He decided he should do something about it, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So be aware that Caleb has a a more neutral stance on this. He's going to supply more of the facts. But just know that Ted Kaczynski, to me, is a hometown hero. My dad's listening to this, and I'm sure he's smiling about that. He knows how I feel about him. He knows that when I was growing up, I was taking my... I'm 34 years old when... We're going to talk about it later, but when Ted's trailer was being removed from Lincoln, it was on a truck and we got to see it. It drove through town. There's 
a real strong lore with Ted Kaczynski, and a lot of people from Montana just saw him as a true Montanan. Yeah. Somebody, not this new conservative bullshit where they're creating all these made-up rules. Also, I don't understand conservative poor white people. Like, if you're a country person, I don't know why you pick either side of the aisle, to be on. To be honest, you're from the country. That's about being something else. But you preserve your family, you care about those around you, yeah. and you take care of the country. And I think that's what Ted was doing. Now, yeah. let's get into who Ted Kaczynski was and what he was doing. Now that people have had to listen to that <laughs> two-minute-long diatribe about the country. Yeah, so... Uh, as I typically do when we do a case, before we talk about what they did, we talk about who the person was. It's important. That's important to set the context. It's really easy to say something about a person you don't know anything about. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, me and my friends used to have a rule when I was in high school that you couldn't make it your mom joke once you had met that person's mom. Because yeah. now you're just talking about Sandy. Yeah. Oh, there's a joke that we've made a couple of times, too, where it's like, if you ever acknowledge something that someone else says, like, that's why the, the main joke is... If you have, like, a friend outside of the group hanging out or, like, a girlfriend or something like that, you can't make jokes about each other because the moment they acknowledge it, it becomes real. Yep. So you're like, oh, you fucking suck. And someone else is like, they don't suck. And it's like, ah, man, now I feel like a bad person because <laughs> yeah, you, you acknowledged it. Like, you're not supposed to acknowledge it. It's humor. Yeah. Well, it's not. But uh, Theodore John Kaczynski was born May 22nd, 1942. My favorite actor from The Office. <laughs> in uh, Chicago. Uh, to working-class parents Wanda Teresa and Theodore Richard Kaczynski, who was a sausage maker. Which is, as you pointed out when we were doing Discovery, has become something of a trend. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the people that we've covered on the show, and, you know, it's not like, we don't just call, cover, you know, just murders. We cover thefts. We cover conspiracies, aliens, Sasquatch, pretty much damn near everything that's unconventional paranormal, whatever. And there are a lot of people across that that seem to have sausage makers for fathers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I think maybe it's like uh, having a sausage maker as a father instills in you the ability to make the most out of what you have. You know? Because, well, we only have 10% of everything we need. Yeah. I have a solution. So, uh, Ted grew up as a, according to his parents, a very happy baby until severe hives forced him into hospital isolation uh, f with limited contact with other people for months. And after that, he showed little emotion and was just very reserved and confined. And his mom even said that Ted would recoil at pictures of himself as an infant being held down by physicians examining his hives. And he was very sympathetic towards animals who were in cages or otherwise helpless. And she specula uh, speculated that it stemmed from his experience in hospital isolation. That just... that that confined space and being poked and prodded and feeling helpless just really changed his outlook at a young age. And so he was very sympathetic towards things like that and animals specifically, which plays a whole lot into how he grows up. But from the first to the fourth grade, he attended Sherman Elementary in Chicago where administrators described him as healthy and well-adjusted. But uh, in 1952, three, uh, three years after his baby brother was born, they realized that they should probably move. So they moved to Evergreen Park, Illinois, and he transferred to Evergreen Park Central Junior High, where he did an IQ test, scored 167 on the IQ test, and skipped the sixth grade. And he says that was a pivotal moment in his life because he, of course, tested very smart, skipped the sixth grade, and then felt like an outcast the rest of his life. I have a, my partner. She... Uh same problem. She was asked to skip a grade, and it really just kind of fucked everything up when she was younger. Because it, it's hard. I was in a blended class when I was in. It always seems to be fifth grade or sixth grade. Because mm -hmm. I was in a blended class when I was in fifth, sixth grade. So I was in sixth grade while I was in fifth grade. But the way that they handled that is they just put everybody in the same class. Yeah. yeah. They, they, they said that he 
used to socialize with his peers and even be a leader, but when he skipped the sixth grade, he was just relentlessly bullied, was very reserved, like, didn't talk to anyone anymore. Well, I mean, you know, we all know that being intelligent is, like, being capable and being intelligent is, like, the number one thing that creates school shooters. Yeah. You know, because there's that. It's it's being ostracized for a reason you don't understand. Like, what, what did I do wrong? I thought I was good. And it's on and it's on both sides too. I know my cousin was uh, when he was in the fourth grade, he was held back a year because uh, the teachers felt that his oh, reading he must have level just been tortured. Well, yeah. So he was. I mean, he was born um, in October of his age group, so he was already on the older side. Yeah, he's anyways. already on the older side. And then he was held back, and he he's told me before that he's like, yeah, I just felt like an outcast all the time yeah. because he was like, I I was well almost. 18 or almost 19 by the time I graduated high school, and people made fun of me all the fucking time. Of course, they did, yeah. Um, so Kaczynski then ended up at Evergreen Park Community High, where he did great with school. Like, he was super smart. He played the uh, trombone and marching band and was a member of the mathematics, biology, coin, and German clubs. (laughs) Oh, oh no, though. You know? Yeah. Those are little, (laughs) those are red flags. Anytime somebody collects coins, I take one step back. What Shout f- out to you, mom. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, but your mom will collect whatever. You yeah. Know? Yeah. People who like are really intensely into restoring coins and stuff. I get it. I hear you. But you know, there's like a through line, right? Like if you're not that guy and you love coins, you know which guy I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, so in 1996, a former classmate of his was like, he was never really seen as a person. Like, he didn't have an individual personality. Okay. People just kind of treated him as, like, a walking brain. Yeah, well, yeah, he's the he's the encyclopedia, right? He, he was the smart guy who was reserved, but he was part of all these groups, but people really didn't get to know him or learn about him. Yeah, that there's that, he's beast. Yeah. Trope. And during this time, he became super interested in mathematics, spending hours studying and solving advanced uh, problems. Which I understand, because math gives you like a feeling of accomplishment and socialization that you can't necessarily get with friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is kind of how he made his friends. So this this interest in mathematics and problem solving, he got in with a group of people who were very like-minded, interested in science and mathematics, and they were known around school as the briefcase boys, because they all carried briefcases instead of backpacks. backpacks. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Back when that was charming and not very, very worrisome. Yeah. Uh, so throughout high school, he was ahead of his classmates academically, like, through and through. He placed high in mathematics, uh, mastered mathematics, graduated high school at 15, and he was one of his school's first uh, five National Merit finalists, and they encouraged him to apply to Harvard. They're like, hey, man, you graduated school at 15. You obviously know a ton about mathematics. Go to Harvard. So he applies. He gets accepted and gets into Harvard on a scholarship at 16. Jeez. Yeah, so... Uh, and people, it's wild to... Like, somebody who's obviously very capable of using his imagination and his intellect to tie things together, and when he starts doing something that people object to, their immediate thought is, well, he's lost it. Have yeah. you maybe considered that he just figured something out that you don't know yet? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, continue. That's like... Uh, he's just so smart for people to vilify him as this fucking crazy person. He was called a schizoid, which we'll get to. He's not. I want to make it abundantly clear that another thing that's very personal about to me is that my closest family friend, uh, my cousin Paul, is paranoid, delusional, schizophrenic, the real kind that needs medication and someone to look after him on a regular basis. Uh, th- I hate it when that shit gets thrown around. When yeah. You've seen me get mad at people who are like, oh, I'm kind of schizophrenic. I'm like, you're not fucking schizophrenic. You're erratic. Yeah. That's not the same thing. Yeah. Um, so 
the the same classmate later said that Kaczynski was just not emotionally prepared to go to college. Dude, that makes sense. He, he was, was 16. 16. And he even said... And he was already, like, kind of withheld. Yeah, and they said... They packed him up and sent him to Harvard before he was ready. He didn't even have a driver's license. Oh, shit. Yeah. Shit. So, he starts going to Harvard. His first year at Harvard, um, he lived at 8 Prescott Street, which everyone kind of knows that 8 Prescott Street is designed to accommodate the youngest, uh, just strangest incoming students in yeah. a small, intimate living space. Just kind of keep an eye on people. And in the next three years, he lived at Elliott House, which is kind of known for the very intelligent students. So he was. So he's always stuck out. Even yeah. at Harvard, he stuck out as a brilliant person. Exactly. Yeah, they, they literally put him in a box that made him stick out. <laughs> They're like, oh, you're 16 and you're here? You go... Uh, be in the weird smart kid house. <laughs> yeah. And the then once you get out of there, walls. you go into the weird smart kid house. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah. Well, this, yeah, his understanding of like, there's no wonder that he had such a profound desire to break free. Mm -hmm. His entire life, he was organized, categorized. You know, he was a number. He yeah. Was, sure, it's, it seems flattering because you're smart or whatever, but he's still being told, well, you live here because you're this type of person. You get told you're a type of person enough. It has an effect on you. So uh, his housemates and other students at Harvard described him as very intelligent, but socially reserved. Like, yeah. super smart, did great in all of his classes, but never really conversed with anyone, never really hung out with anyone. And he got his uh, Bachelor of Arts degree in mathematics in four years, finished in four years with a GPA of 3.12. Damn, okay. So he's he's got a degree. His second year at Harvard, he starts... Um, participating in a study that was described by an author later on as a purposely brutalizing psychological experiment led by Harvard psychologist Henry Murray. Uh, this experiment, subjects were told that they would debate personal philosophy with fellow students and were asked to write essays detailing their personal beliefs and aspirations. Isn't it funny that in the 60s this was a Harvard experiment and now it's a Jubilee video? Yeah. <laughs> um, the essays were then we given. We find these and get Cody Co to react to these old ones. They, it's really fucked up what they did. So they were well, like, yeah, "It's got to be like the fucking Stanford Prison experiment." Oh yeah, you know, like so. That's the same time period. They were like, "Hey, MK Ultra, <laughs> same time period." Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're like, "Hey, you're gonna debate other students, write down your beliefs and aspirations." Then these essays were given to anonymous individuals who would then confront and belittle the subject in what Murray himself called vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive attacks. Damn. Using the content of the essays as ammunition. So, so they were, they, this is just like po the internet comments. They yeah. just made them post something on the internet. Yeah. Um, then electrodes monitored the subject's physiological reactions, and these encounters were filmed, and the subject's expressions of anger and rage were later played back to them repeatedly. So, like, their own reactions were also used as torture this against them. This feels like the stuff they did to Alexander in uh, A Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. The experiment lasted three years. Holy shit. With someone verbally... I blow somebody up if you made me do that for three years. With someone verbally abusing and humiliating Krasinski each week, and he spent 200 hours... Krasinski, not Krasinski. Oh, that's, my bad. That that's the... GM. Yeah. That's Big Tuna. Krasinski. We're not talking about Big Tuna. We're talking about the bigger <laughs> tuna. We we kept making that joke earlier, yeah. so it's but crossed so in my brain. one R away. Yeah. yeah. Um, he hours. What if hours. Ted hid? What if back then, instead of all this other stuff, he just put an R in his name? He's like... Different no, guy. I'm Ted Krasinski. This is they're like from the office. <laughs> so he spent 200 hours in that study, and his lawyers would later attribute his hostility towards mind control techniques 
to his participation in the study. Yeah, no shit. He for three years he was basically part of a, a psyop. Well, many people believe that Murray's experiments were actually part of MK Ultra. Okay, that they were a larger psyop. Mm-hmm. That uh, people suggest that the experiment have motivated Krasinski uh, Kaczynski's <laughs> criminal activities, but he was like, no, um, I just resent the dude and his coworkers. Because it's just kind of an invasion of my privacy. Yeah, we'll get into it towards the end of the podcast, but there's definitely, there were a lot of, uh, people tried to come up with a a lot of justifications or reasons as to why uh, Ted did what he did. And all his response ever was, was, no, there's nothing wrong with me. I just have a point. Yeah. And instead of listening to his point and like entering into that greater dialogue, the discourse is just, you did this because you're a crazy person. He's like, no, I'm not crazy. I did it because I'm pissed off at you. I'm trying to prove a point to you. You guys blow up the mountains, so I'm blowing you up. Do you see the poetry in there? (laughs) He even said, I am quite confident that my experiences with Professor Murray have no significant effect on the course of my life. (laughs) (laughs) And he would fucking know. Yeah. Yeah. I think he knew that that was bullshit, and I could see him thinking that it's a joke. Like, you're not going to win his trust over when it comes to, you know, mind shit. Yeah. You know, when it comes to to brainwashing or whatever. But I don't think the guy was as weak-minded as that made him into some zombie or some bullshit. So after he graduates Harvard, he enrolled in the University of Michigan, where he got his master's and doctoral degrees in mathematics in 64 and 67, respectively. But Michigan wasn't his first choice. He wanted to go to uh, University of California, Berkeley, and the University of Chicago, which both accepted him but didn't offer him a teaching position or financial aid. Okay. So Michigan actually offered him an annual grant of $2,310 that's equivalent to $19,763 today and a teaching position. Okay. So... After he graduates and gets his master's and doctoral, he starts teaching there. And he specializes in complex analysis, specifically in... Uh, uh, berating people who yeah. have a point. <laughs> Geometric function theory. Okay. So a bunch of his professors were like, he is not an unusual... Or he was an unusual person. He's not like normal people. He's much more focused about his work. And he had this weird drive to just find mathematical truths. Well, that's because he was looking for a lot of certainty in his life. And I suppose, well, I would imagine you probably want to talk about it here in a moment, but uh, Ted was very likely trans. Yes. And I think that that was a long standing. Um, I think that was something that he wasn't able to fully codify. And I think in doing so, that left him without some identity, you know? Yeah. Uh, all so of you look for certainty, especially in math. You know, like, granted, math is not all about certainty, especially advanced math. Once you get out of algebra and trig and stuff, you get into uncertain math. Mm-hmm. But there's a language, there are rules, and you can kind of follow a breadcrumb um, based on precedent and based on the rules, whereas in real life, you can't do that. Yeah. So you find a lot of people that go towards math that. Um, need structure in their lives that maybe feel like they don't have it. Well, in order to get it, math gives it to them. And I think in this case, you kind of saw that, especially with, you know, any sort of body identity issues that Ted may have had. Yeah. So his professors were like, it's not enough to say he was smart. And they're like, just look at his grades. And in the 18 courses he took at university, he had 12 A's, five B's and one F. And the one F is because he just didn't show up to the yeah, class. Yeah, of course it was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. A man like that gets an F on purpose. But uh, in 2006, uh, Ted himself said he was had unpleasant memories of Michigan and felt the university same, had same. low standards for grading as evidenced by his relatively high grades. <laughs> He's like, I'm <laughs> dumb, dude. He's like, I'm not that smart. They're just dumb as fuck. And those classes are easy. <laughs> but uh, like you said, for a period of several weeks in 1966, 
Uh, Ted experienced intense sexual fantasies about being uh, female and decided to undergo gender transition. But he arranged to meet with a psychiatrist. And bear in mind, guys, this is in the 60s. Like, yeah. This is 69. Yeah. Nice. But still, you know, that was, look at it now. I mean, people, trans people are still told they have a mental illness. They're still told that they feel that way because they're crazy. This yeah. dude, a guy who's already been gaslit his whole life. I could understand if as soon as you were like, hey, I want to do that. Doctors were like, uh, you were just like, okay, fine, fuck it. Sorry, finish. Oh, uh, he arranged to meet with the psychiatrist, but ended up changing his mind in the waiting room and did not disclose his reason for making the appointment with the psychiatrist. But afterwards... Well, he probably felt ashamed. Oh, yeah. Um, he Afterwards, he was enraged, and he considered killing the psychiatrist and other people who he hated because he described this episode as a major turning point in his life because, quote, I felt disgusted about what my uncontrolled sexual cravings had almost led me to do, and I felt humiliated, and I violently hated the psychiatrist. Just then, there came a major, a major turning point in my life. Like a phoenix, I burst from the ashes of my despair to a glorious new hope. Yeah. So there's, you know, there was, I think those are feelings that plenty of trans or even non-trans, but, you know, closeted individuals feel about a lot of things about themselves. Mm -hmm. That anger that he had at the psychiatrist is because he's ashamed. Yeah. And he feels ashamed because he's told to feel ashamed. Yeah. Yeah. That's a shame. You know, it makes you wonder those big what if moments, right? But what if Ted would have gone through with it? You know, what if... Mm -hmm. I mean, he only killed three people, and I say, I know I said only, but, like, in this, we talked about Om Shinrikyo on this yeah. podcast. Those motherfuckers were just killing people with anthrax for fun. They started making it in a neighborhood where they were killing people who lived around them. Ted wasn't one of those people. No. He wasn't looking for chaos, per se, but I think he just had, I think he got to a point where he was so full of rage and confusion that there was nothing else he could do. So, in late 1967, at 25 years old, he became acting assistant professor at the University of California, Berkeley, where he taught mathematics. And by September 25. Mm -hmm. And by September of 1968, uh, he was appointed assistant professor, a sign that was, he was on track for tenure. But his teaching evaluation suggested he was not well liked by his students. Um, a lot of people said he, they felt like he was uncomfortable with teaching. He taught straight from the textbook. And he would not answer people's questions. Well, because he probably thought they were stupid. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, without Which any explanation, yeah. <laughs> uh, without any explanation, on June thirtieth, nineteen sixty nine, nice. Mm -hmm. uh, he just got up and resigned. Just one day, just walked in, was like, "I'm done." I'm and out left. of here. And even the chairman of mathematics department, uh, J. W. Addison, was like, "Yeah, this was a sudden, unexpected resignation. Like, we did not see this coming at all." And after the resignation from Berkeley, he moved to his parents' home back in Illinois, and then two years later in 1971, moved to a remote cabin outside Lincoln, uh, where he could live. He wanted to live a simple life with little money, no electricity or running water, working odd jobs, and rece receiving significant financial support from his family. And yeah, I want to make it abundantly clear. You know, the survivalist side of it, I'm not as keen on. I, I have a tendency to sort of look down my nose at survivalists only because the people like I grew up in a rural environment, raising animals, doing that sort of stuff. And I think the people who live in cities who like go on naked and afraid and stuff are fucking lame. And I think they're lame because that's not a real achievement. They're lying to themselves. The achievement is that we don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. The achievement is that we have fucking shoes and that we have food and homes and medicine. Those are good fucking things. That's a sign of progress, you guys. So to want to get away from that because you feel like, all of it's monolithic, like everything's tied to it. Just put your fucking cell phone down, you jackass. Like, <laughs> I didn't have a cell phone, a cell phone, until I was like 27. And that's, or I guess, 
a little sooner than that, maybe 25, about his age, sort of the opposite. You don't have to participate if you don't want to. And I, I just see a lot of people who are like, I'm going to go to Alaska. And I'm bitter about this because there are people who moved to Montana. And I think Ted was fine. And at the time he did it, I think he was fine. But you have these people who moved to Montana who, again, they want to live country and do all this shit. It's like, that's not that's not what we're at anymore. Yeah. That's not. I also love living in the woods with a bunch of acreage. And I love being in the forest. And when I go camping, I sleep on the ground, not in a tent. But it doesn't change the fact that if I'm going to fucking live out there... Yeah, I want some running water. I would like electricity. I would like to be able to use the internet. These are modern things that, to be lidical, I think in his situation, they, these none of these things existed other than electricity and running water. Yeah. And at the time, if you wanted to live in Lincoln without running water, all that meant was that you'd use well water or creek water. So that's not entirely accurate in the sense that there wasn't water readily available. Yeah. It was already running. It was just running down streams. And in a place like Montana, because we haven't decided that we need all this extra shit, and because there are still country people in Montana working to protect it, you had clean land and clean water that we could still... Uh, don't get me wrong, guys. I fantasize about that too. I would love it if I could just walk out of my little hut and live that way. But we are fetishizing about something that humans haven't done for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah. So to ignore all that, I think is myopic to be like, well, I live off the land. Like we were, I just started watching 90 day fiance has a new show that's live, love off the grid. And it's like one person who they never actually live off the grid because they they have social security numbers. They have IDs. They have like, you live on a grid, pal. You might as well take some advantage. Of yeah. It. Like get a VPN, live in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and have some solar panels. What's fucking wrong with you? I don't want to <laughs> shit in a pile. I, I did that when I was a kid. It's a stupid fucking way to live. It's a messy way to live. Just yeah. get a toilet. Yeah. Drives me nuts. He's like, no running water. Get a septic tank. Like, they, there are options. Yeah. <laughs> and just as a country person, I get upset when people are like, that's the only way you can live out there. It's like, no, you can't, motherfucker. Because my whole life, I was teased for not having that stuff. It's yeah. like, oh, he's country. He lives out in the woods. He's a redneck. It's like, now you want to come out. Fuck you. Fuck you. Stay the fuck away. I get you, Ted Kaczynski. Send him a bomb. If you really want to live off the grid, here's what you do. Fake your death, burn your social security card, burn your uh, birth certificate, remove your fingerprints, shave your head. I mean, that's almost what Christopher McCandless did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely ways. And I, we'll talk about Chris McCandless at some point. Yeah. They just took the bus out. The The magic bus was just removed from Alaska where he, where he died. Um, but yeah, I think, don't get me wrong. I agree with living off the grid and or that fundamental concept. I, I think it's good for humans to be at touch with the country they live in, the, the land, the physical land. Um I think living that way is fine. I think the people who ignore uh, modern modernity for the sake of being like, look, guys, I'm like a caveman. No, you're not. You're nothing like a caveman. <laughs> also, cavemen live to 37. You're 42. I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so Ted's original goal was to become self-sufficient so he could live autonomously. Um, and he used an old bicycle to get to town, would volunteer at the local library that he visited frequently to read classic works in their original languages. And other Lincoln residents said later that the lifestyle wasn't unusual in the area. No, like, that, that's, and that's that's how you live. Like I can, yeah. I can. As I'm not a Lincoln resident, but I'm from right down the road, and I can vouch that. Yeah, dude, when I moved to Arizona, uh, I got in trouble for riding a dirt bike like on the street, and I had to get a bicycle. I had, I didn't have a bicycle till I was like 12, 13 years old. And in Montana, that's a normal ass thing. You can do that as long as you're not getting in trouble. They don't really care. Yeah, yeah. The the intersections in my neighborhood in my hometown like outside of my dad's house this was an issue around christmas time they're four-way intersections that have no indications you just have to use common sense and you have to use right of way and you yeah. have to like there are certain things in montana this stuff guys there wasn't a, a freeway speed limit until about 10 years ago still don't pay 
state taxes, despite the fact that they have one of the best uh, like tax-rich states. What sucks about conservatism now taking place in Montana is that it's ruining this shit. That's what people don't get. You can sit on your fucking computer or on your phone or probably in your truck taking a selfie of yourself. But that's not Montana. It's never been Montana. I know what the fuck it is. I grew up out of that ground like a seed, just like the grass that's there. And I can tell you that Ted Kaczynski's right. To want to live that way, that simple life is worth preserving. And these motherfuckers who come in with their big stupid trucks and their dumb ideas don't make it any better. You're not helping anybody. You're not... Nobody there lives off the fucking grid. They just don't have to go to Starbucks. When yeah. we, we didn't used to go to town unless we had to get, like, Carhartt or something. You know, like, you could stay at home. You don't have to do that stuff. Yeah. To live autonomously is just, he just wanted to have a garden and hunt rabbits in his yard. Yeah. Which, you know, you can do to a certain extent. And in Montana where there's a, you know, a sprawl, the population density there I try to describe to people, it's like if New Jersey was only a tenth of the populace, but it's the same density. So there's, like, a town every 10 miles. There's just... 200 people in that. Yeah. So I don't know. Everybody kind of keeps to their own, but is also still kind of connected. So yeah, you could definitely live like a simple, you could still live that simple ass life if you wanted to in my hometown. You could ride a bicycle to your job and like, yeah, that would be totally doable. There's, there's nothing in your way. The shitty thing, the reason I get heated about it is because I am watching it go away. And like, we've got this new conservative governor who wants to push in all this bullshit and it's all these lifted trucks and pollution and bullshit. And none of it is about taking care of the earth. Yeah. I don't care what fucking political flag you fly. If you don't care about mother earth, I don't care about you. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> so, uh, to get into his actual acts, uh, starting in 1975. Yeah, let's get it in the bombing. Now I said that if you don't care about the <laughs> planet, I don't care about you. Let's talk about him blowing some people up. Uh, Ted- Which he didn't do, to be clear. Yeah. Nobody blew up. No. Um, in 1975, uh, Ted performed acts of sabotage, including arson and booby trapping against developments near his cabin. And I want to point out that... I know I've been taking over a little bit here, but you got to give a bunch of history. So I'm going to give a bunch of color. We're in the, we're at the midpoint, considering this a halftime show, but there's like a, uh, there was a, a, it's 1975, the early seventies. It should be, we should paint a little bit more of a picture here. We had OPEC. We had the first oil shortage. We had, uh, Vietnam had slowly come to an end. You know, Vietnam realistically ends in 75, Mm -hmm. Uh, we are not dissimilar from now. We're short on a lot of things and we're coming out of a war that we wasted 20 years on. And there was a, a very popular belief in these sort of things. Edward Abbey, I talked about at the beginning of this, but I love Ed Abbey. If you guys haven't read Ed Abbey, uh, and you consider yourself to be fucking country, you're a full of shit. Ed Abbey will teach you everything you need to know about it. And because I grew up in, on the West coast and specifically in the Southwest, Edward Abbey's books are about, um, well, I mean, the most famous one is the monkey ranch gang. And that is exactly what it sounds like. It's about a bunch of eco terrorists. If that's what you want to call them, who, uh, commit elaborate forms of sabotage to try to stop, um, you know, the, the developers and the, uh, there's also a historical fiction about stopping the construction of the Glen Canyon dam. And, you know, when people think of eco-terrorism, they usually think of like PETA advocates who are throwing red paint on people, or they think about chaining yourself to a tree. That's not what Ed was saying you should do. Ed was saying you go down and you set all those bulldozers on fire. Yeah. Yeah. Stop them. When I was, like I said, when I was growing up, Rodney Coronado and the earth first, uh, the earth liberation front, like, 
first earth that's different that's that's our that's that's the men who stare at goats but the earth liberation front like those guys when they were building in phoenix this like endless fucking sprawl of mcmansion garbage buildings they'd wait till they were halfway built when they're full of wood and insulation and then they just go set them on fire Mm -hmm. and they burn them all down and those were insured so they'd get their fucking money back and yeah you could make some statement about how that releases carbon or whatever but what it really does is it gets a message across yeah it makes it abundantly clear so in 1975 while ted was probably best known because of his actions, what he was doing was not uncommon. Yeah. It was very much a feeling amongst the people. And I want to make that clear because he gets painted as some terrorist who is acting on his own volition, who is, no, that's not what was happening here. He was watching the place that he loved, that he felt safe being blown up guys. I'm not talking about, this is like, you know, we live in Kentucky now. We talk about that a decent amount. And here you see the coal mountains that are gone. They're gone. And so were the coal companies. And they said when they came to town that they'd always be around. There's always be a mine. And then when they ran out of mountain, they said it was the politicians' fault. No, you motherfuckers lied to us. And you took the mine away because you knew it wasn't always going to be there. And Montana doesn't want that to happen there. You know? So I, I understand where he was coming from. But I also want everybody to understand in a greater context that this is how a large portion of the country felt about these things. So between 1978 and 1995, uh, Ted mailed or hand-delivered a series of increasingly sophisticated bombs that killed three people and injured 23 others. Um, 16 bombs were attributed to Ted. While the bombing devices varied widely throughout the years, many contained the initials of FC. Freedom Club. Which, yep, he said stood for Freedom Club, inscribed on parts, and he purposefully left misleading clues in the devices and took extreme care in preparing them to avoid leaving fingerprints. And even fingerprints found on some of the devices didn't match his own. Yeah, he would use other people's fingerprints. He'd have people touch stuff and then he'd use it in his bombs. Yeah. So his first mail bomb. He also always referred in his letters uh, in a royal we. He always said we. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Freedom Club was believed to be a large group of people. So his. Which it could have been. It could have been. Yeah. Uh, We know Ted just took the fall. His first mail bomb was directed at Buckley Christ a professor of materials engineering at Northwest University. And so on May 25th, 1978, a package bearing Chris' return address was found in a parking lot at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, the package was returned to Chris, who was suspicious because he had sent it. Uh, and so he contacted campus police. Officer Terry Marker opened the package. I love that his name is Terry. Terry. such a campus police name. Mm-hmm. Um, he opened the package, which exploded and caused minor injuries. Um, Ted had returned to Chicago for the May 1978 bombing and stayed there for a time to work with his father and brother at a foam rubber factory. Interesting. So in August of 1978, his brother fired him from, uh, for writing insulting limericks about a female supervisor. <laughs> I'm sure they were really like misogynist and terrible. We shouldn't laugh at it, but that's a fucking hilarious reason to get fired. Uh, it's because uh, Ted dated her for a little bit. And then after they broke up... He's writing, like, stinky pussy limericks on the bathroom wall, and they're like, Ted, we gotta fire you, man. Um, The supervisor later called Ted uh, an intelligent and quiet, but remembered their acquaintanceship and firmly denied they had any romantic relationship. We did not fuck. I did not fuck I did not have sexual relations with with that that Unabomber. Yeah, with that man. So... Uh, Ted's second bomb was sent nearly one year after the first one, again to Northwestern University. Uh, This bomb was concealed inside a cigar box and left on a table, and it caused minor injuries to graduate student John Harris, who opened it. So, another year goes past, 
and a bomb was placed in the cargo hold of American Airlines Flight 444, which was a Boeing 727 flying from Chicago to Washington, D.C., but a faulting timing mechanism prevented from the, the bomb from actually exploding, but did cause it to release smoke, which caused the pilots to carry out an emergency landing. When authorities uh, looked it over, they said it had enough power to, quote, obliterate the plane. Okay. Had it exploded. Well, in all fairness, planes are basically like, you've been up in a few lately. They're basically <laughs> plastic wrap around metal bars. It probably could have, you know, like, I feel like a cap gun would obliterate yeah. a plane. I hate to say if it. If you but. punch the window too hard, it could obliterate the plane. <laughs> it could obliterate a plane. Um, so, Ted then sends his next bomb to Percy Wood. Which, also, before we get into this next one, that is why he was called the Unabomber. It has nothing to do with uh, anonymity, which is weird because it's Unabomber, not Anon Bomber. Um, which I'm surprised we haven't had. Uh, we're going to do the school shooting candy bar thing right now. If there is ever an Anon bomber and you see this, we like you. We're on your side. <laughs> we like your shoes. We think you're cool. It's weird that you're kind of quiet, but we got no beef with you. Hey, man, don't shoot, shoot us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we just I've, That's kind of the role we both always yeah. played is we won't get shot at the school shooting. Yeah. <laughs> we're nice to the weird kid, but it's for self-preservation. <laughs> well, sometimes and sometimes they're just cool. Yeah, you spend enough time around them. Anyway, yeah, that's uh, – it's – he was called that because he was bombing uh, universities and planes. Yeah. Yeah. UNA, universities and airplanes. <laughs> yep, that's, that's why it's Unabomber. So he was actually originally called the Junkyard Bomber, yes. which is a significantly sicker name. And also what I'm going to say they should name Mando's new ship on The Mandalorian. That the should be called bomber. the Junkyard Bomber. Yeah. Um, so Ted sends his next bomb to Percy Wood, the president of United Airlines. He's like, I couldn't get your plane. I guess I'll just get hey, you. Hey, I missed mm -hmm. your plane, but I got your address. So this is why we don't have phone books anymore. <laughs> Ted left false clues in most of his bombs, like I said previously, which he intentionally made hard to find to make them appear more legitimate. Do you think he wanted to be known as the red herring bomber, but all he had done was served his own purposes? He was yeah. like, ah, they're going to they're gonna see all these red herrings, and they'll call me the red herring bomber, and they're like, shit, they're just falling for all of them, yeah. and they haven't got me yet. So like I said, he would uh, leave the initials FC hidden somewhere, usually in the pipe end cap in the bombs. Um, <laughs> he once left a bomb that purposely did not detonate, and the note inside <laughs> of it... This is like Joker shit. The note inside of it read, Woo, it works. I told you it would. Signed, RV. <laughs> <laughs> and then he would also use Eugene O'Neill $1 stamps to send his boxes. So all of these, he left clues, which people were like, Oh, man, that's they would follow the clues exactly like you said. And one time he sent a bomb embedded in a copy of Sloan Wilson's novel Ice Brothers. Yeah. And the FBI theorized that his crimes involved a theme of nature, trees, and wood because he would often include bits of tree branch and bark in his bombs. And so people, uh, when he targeted Percy Wood and uh, Leroy Wood, he was like, oh, man, he has an obsession with wood. He's not going after Percy Wood because he's the president of United Airlines it's because his last, last name, name is Wood. wood. Yeah, <laughs> same with the professor, Leroy Wood. And he's like, this has to be a large factor in his bombing. So they're starting to piece some things together. In 1981... is the treehouse bomb. <laughs> this takes us two years later. In 1981, a package that had been discovered in a hallway at the University of Utah was brought to campus police and was defused by a bomb squad. And then in May of the following year, a bomb was placed... or was sent to Patrick C. Fisher, a professor teaching at Vanderbilt University. Fisher. Oh, yeah. What did I say? No, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Wood, Fisher. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, Fisher was on vacation in Puerto Rico at the time, and his secretary, Janet Smith, opened the bomb and received injuries to the face and the arms. Man, like being a secretary wasn't bad enough back then. So uh, Ted's next two bombs targeted people at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, which he used to work at. And yep. so uh, his first... When he was 25. Yeah, his first in July of 1982 caused serious injuries to engineering professor... Oh, uh, man. Diagnos Anelikos. Sure. Yeah. Uh, nearly three years later... Great names are hard. <laughs> uh, in May of 1985... John Hauser, a graduate student and captain of the United States Air Force, lost four fingers and vision in one eye because of a bomb that went off. That um, was specifically made from wooden parts. Yes, it was. Yeah, he made a few bombs that let out wood shrapnel, too. Yeah. It, I mean, you guys got to recall, like, to the people who maybe don't have a context for this, when you live somewhere where they're clearing out a mountain, all you hear all day long is explosion after explosion. And it's usually somewhere that should be quiet and still mm-hmm. and all you like it's so easy to eat animals without their heads and all that stuff but when you have to be honest about the cruelty we're showing animals and you live in a place where you love them and you see them scared and you see them running and you see that the birds have left and all of those things it starts to make you fucking angry yeah because think about i mean people can show that love to their dogs and cats just show it to all the rest of the animals yeah. there's a reason he was this fucking mad and the reason he was bombing people with trees is because his trees were being bombed yeah. the way he saw it is you're committing acts of war against a defenseless being i will stand up for it yeah so it's kind of cute that he put little tree branches in there <laughs> um so next he sent a bomb to the boeing company in auburn washington and it was d- diffused by a bomb squad uh the following month. Okay. It, it never went off, and they were able to defuse it. But in November of 1985, two, uh, er, a professor, James V. McConnell, and his research assistant, Nicholas Sweeney, uh, were both severely injured after Sweeney opened a mail bomb addressed to McConnell. Damn. So another another professor. Yeah. And later that year, uh, a nail and splinter-loaded bomb placed in the parking lot of a store in Sacramento, California, killed 38-year-old computer store owner Hugo Scruton. Um, a similar attack again happened against a computer store in Salt Lake City, Utah, on February twentieth, nineteen eighty-seven. Yeah, for those who maybe aren't old enough to remember, computers used to be sold sold in little stores. Like mm-hmm. they weren't Best Buy stuff like that didn't really exist. There was Best, which I think maybe went on to be Best Buy. Those stores were cool because they had all these like Google that they had all these really cool like elaborate facades, kind of like Fry's Electronics. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there were computer stores, right? So the idea of stopping computers, stopping this digitization, you know, his lidical efforts as he got older definitely turned just towards the instruments and less the people. So yeah, just start blowing up the computers then. Um, Feels like Tyler Durden shit. The the bomb in the February 20 attack was disguised as a piece of lumber and injured Gary Wright, the owner of the store, when he tried to remove it from the store's parking lot. The explosion severed nerves in Wright's left arm, Wright's left arm, mm-hmm. um, and propelled over 200 pieces of shrapnel into his body. Goddamn. Like, that stuff, I mean... Going after innocent store owners, I don't, I don't, like, I understand the guy's point. I think maybe stick to the people who are doing this stuff. Uh, or blow up the computer store, but don't blow up the guy who owns it. Yeah. Uh, Ted was spotted while planting the Salt Lake City bomb, and this led to a widely distributed sketch of the suspect as a hooded man with yeah, a mustache everybody and aviator sunglasses. I could put it up right now, but everybody knows yeah. that Unabomber uh sketch that didn't look anything like Ted. No. Ted never looked like that, no. ever. That couldn't have been, like, for as widely circulated as it is, it could not have been more inaccurate. Yes. For all we know, D.B. Cooper was a black guy with a beard based on that fucking sketch. Uh, I, yeah. No, um, 
1993, so he takes a six-year break. In 1993, he went fishing. He mailed a bomb to the home of Charles Epstein from the University of California, San Francisco. No relation. Nah, damn. Uh, Epstein lost several fingers upon opening the package. Charles Epstein didn't bomb himself. And in the same weekend, Ted mailed a bomb to uh, David Gilletner, okay. a computer science professor at Yale. Okay. Uh, Gilletner lost sight in one eye, hearing in one ear, and a portion of his right hand. Damn. Which, again, he's now going after um, engineering and computer people, too. Yeah, it's the... Well, because, you know, like, the... Like, you know, he did this over the course of 20 years. When he started, it was bulldozers, and, uh, you know, it felt like Fern Gully. And now yeah. it's turning into something completely different. So... In 1994, uh, Burson Marsteller executive Thomas Moser was killed after opening a mail bomb sent to his house in New Jersey. And in a letter to the New York Times, Ted wrote that he sent the bomb because Moser's work repairing the public image of Exxon after the Exxon uh, Valdez oil spill. So again, it's like, I mean, yeah, he mailed a bomb and killed a guy, but that guy was a piece of shit who made his nut. And I, I get... The, the counter argument to that is, well, capitalism, everybody's got to have a job. No, you're wrong. You're wrong about that. If you have a shitty job, you can be held to account for having a shitty job. And nobody who's starving has that job. Yeah. You know what I mean? If it's like somebody who has no other choice, yeah, don't sweat them for their job. But the guy who's in charge of re restoring the public opinion of a company as evil as Exxon? Yeah. I mean, kind of fuck that guy, let's be honest. So this was followed by the 1995 murder of Gilbert Brent Murray who was the president of the timber industry lobbying group California Forestry Association. Yeah, because, again, like, yeah, at this point, if I was somebody who was in that position, I mean, this is 15 years of people getting blown up, I might start thinking twice about advocating for the destruction of the wilderness. I yeah. might just be like, you know what? I'm going to go work at a gas station for a while. Uh, the mail bomb, though, was addressed to the previous president, William Dennison, who had retired. Damn, Bill Dennison lucked out. Um, Philip Sharp at the Massachusetts in, uh, MIT uh, received a threatening letter shortly afterwards. He was like, okay. <laughs> so in 1995, Ted then mailed several letters to the media outlets outlining his goals and demanding a major newspaper print of his 35,000-word essay. Industrial uh, Society and its future. Yep. I'd love to say I haven't read it, but I've read it a number of times. Uh, also known as the Unabomber Manifesto. Which is the shitty thing to call it because it is a, a very... Uh, maybe I'll find a, a copy of it and attach it in the, uh, the description of this video. But it's definitely worth reading. It's very fascinating. And if you want a very good picture of who he was, read his autobiography. Uh, it's very good. And also read uh, his manifesto because the manifesto tells you exactly why he was doing everything he was doing, more so than a manifesto usually does. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there was a bunch of controversy whether or not the essay should be published, but Attorney General Janet Reno and FBI Director Louis Free recommended that its publication uh, be sent out out of concern due to public safety and in hopes that people reading it could figure out who the author was. But he also said he would stop. He said he would, quote, desist with terrorism. Yes. He would stop bombing people if somebody would just print it. Yep. If one newspaper would have printed it, he would have stopped bombing people. Yep. But because um, this bullshit idea that we don't negotiate with terrorists has always been around, he's doing something, man. He's trying to make a point, and if you'd like to let him stop, I think it just, that to me reeks of we wanted to kill him. We wanted yeah. to grab him, and we wanted to kill him. Oh, fuck that, man. You didn't catch him, and he said he was done. So, uh, New York Times didn't agree to publish it, but one person did. Well, have you seen what they do publish? One person did agree to publish it, and that was 
penthouse. I was gonna say it was Larry Flint. Yep. Yeah. People, man, there's a little there's a, a series on Hulu right now about um, Hefner and Playboy, and there should be one on Larry Flint because as disgusting of a human being as Larry Flint was, he was a legitimate hero, and without him, we wouldn't have a lot of the free speech we have. Mm-hmm. Fucking all love to the man who insisted that pussy lips belonged in porn. You know, good for him. And he's right. They do. But good for him. Uh, so Penthouse was like, yeah, we'll publish it. And uh, Kaczynski was like, um, Penthouse is less respectable than the New York Times and the Washington Post. And uh, to increase our chances of getting our stuff published in some respectable periodical, uh, I reserve the right to plant one and only one bomb intended to kill. After our manuscript has been published, if Penthouse <laughs> publishes the document inside the Times. That's such a fantastic. He's like, okay, here's my counter argument. Um, Penthouse, Larry, I appreciate the offer. This is like Shark Tank. Yeah. He's like, it's a Shark Tank episode. He's like, Larry, love the offer. I hear that everybody else is kind of out. However, I need. I need more from you, and you don't have the readership. Allow me. How about I get to kill one more person to get attention, and then you print it. But if the New York Times does it, I won't kill anybody else. That's so funny. <laughs> we'll print it. Oh, who was that? Oh, uh, me back here. Penthouse Magazine? It's like, oh, the porn one? Yeah, man, we'll print it. I mean, we might have a deal, but can I kill one more person? Ah, uh, man, I prefer you didn't. All like right, any, does anyone else? Is there any other sharks we can get in on this? So team? the Washington Post published the essay September 1995. <laughs> so Kaczynski, of course, was super... Super careful with everything he did, and he yep. used a typewriter to type his manuscript, capitalizing entire words for emphasis in lieu of italics. He always referred to himself as either we or FC Freedom Club. Yep, Freedom Club. Though there was no evidence that he ever worked with any other people. No, he didn't. He didn't. He was just yep. a red herring, yeah. So Donald Wade... Although there is a large conspiracy about that, and I guess maybe that's a different... If you guys would like to hear the conspiracy about how Ted Kaczynski worked like Shakespeare, we will happily do that, but today we're just going to talk about him. So Donald... Uh, Donald Wayne Foster analyzed the writing at the request of uh, Kaczynski's defense team in 1996 and noted that it contained irregular spelling and hyphenation along with other linguistic uh, just inaccuracies, just really just weird stuff that you could contribute to one person writing it. And he's like, yeah, it's kind of obvious that he was the author. Because <laughs> like, just the way he spoke. Yeah. It it matched the way he spoke. It matched, like, the idioms that he used, everything like that. And because the material to use the mail bombs, the U.S. postal inspectors, who initially uh, had responsibility of the case, which is crazy that... (laughs) Well, they are. I mean, the postal inspectors are actually pretty important. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're feds. Yeah. Which is wild. Yeah. Yeah, they get guns and stuff. Like, they can arrest you. They're feds. It's like, you're (laughs) in charge of mail. And you... Sometimes don't even deliver it on time. Boy, you're telling me. So uh, they are the ones that labeled the suspect as the junkyard bomber. Okay. Uh, just because it was all like wood and cobbled together pipes and stuff like that. I mean, it's like, a good name. Yeah. The blunderbuss bomber. So FBI inspector Terry D. Turch, or Turchy, I believe is the way you pronounce it. I don't know. Touche. Uh, touche. <laughs> uh, he was the one that was appointed to run the Unabomb, the University and Airline Bomber investigation, and that's where the name took off. So in 1970, er, 1979, the FBI-led task force included 125 agents from the FBI, the ATF, and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. So just big team, and the task that's force everybody. grew to more than 150 full-time personnel. Damn. But minute analysis of recovered component of the bombs 
and investigation into the lives of the victims proved no help. Yeah, yeah. It was so erratic. Everything was cobbled together, all the red herrings. Well, and it was like, there was no even rhythm to the bombs, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's like one every two years. (laughs) And uh, they're like, yeah, um, the bombs are made from scrap materials that are literally available anywhere. Well, that's kind of the point he was making. They're all construction scraps. We can't even pinpoint where he's from. And investigators later learned that the victims were chosen indiscriminately from library research. So it was like, oh, this guy's a professor here? All right, I guess I'll send him a bomb. Oh, this guy's last name is Wood? All right, I guess I'll send him a bomb. Yeah, well, because he was trying to get a point across. Yeah. He was trying to paint a picture. He probably should have been a little more obvious about that picture. But So in uh, 1980, Chief Agent John Douglas, working with uh, agents in the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, issued a psychological profile of the unidentified bomber, and it described the offender as a man with above-average intelligence and connections to academia. So this profile was later refined to characterize the offender as a neo-ludite holding an academic degree in hard sciences, but psychologically, this was discarded in 1983 for some reason. They were, like, so close, and they're like, no. Dude, that's dead on. Yeah. Yeah, that is exactly who the guy is. They're like, no. And then FBI, well, that's not how they caught him either. We'll get to nope. that in just a minute. But uh, FBI analysis developed an alternative theory that concentrated on the physical evidence as to the recovering bomb fragments. And in this rival profile, the suspect was characterized as a blue-collar airplane mechanic. He's about five foot eleven. <laughs> he had a dark complexion. You know, it just sounds like the most generic wrong cop. Description. So the Unibomb task force set up a toll-free telephone hotline to take calls related to the investigation with a million-dollar reward to anyone who could provide information leading to his capture. And it, somebody did. And after the manifesto was published, the FBI received thousands of leads in response to the offer of the reward, and none of them led anywhere. Dude, could you imagine if that happened now, if that was posted to Reddit? Mm-hmm. Like with Forrest Fenn and Gabby Petito and just like... Man, if yeah. fucking Ted Kaczynski was bombing people right now. So, after uh, the FBI started reviewing the new leads, uh, Kaczynski's own brother, David, hired a private investigator, uh, Susan Swanson, in Chicago to investigate Ted's activities discreetly. And then after that... That's uh, dirty, man. ...hired Washington, D.C. attorney Tony Biskelli. Biscetti. Biscetti. Tony Spaghetti. Tony Spaghetti to organize the evidence acquired by Swanson. Eddie Burback's brother's name? Yes, Tony Spaghetti. uh, To take the evidence that Swanson found and contact the FBI, giving the presumed difficulty of attracting the FBI's attention. Yeah. Um, Because he was like, I'm pretty sure that that it's my brother's. And uh, David. Well, he probably saw the manifesto and was like, that's my brother. That's my brother. (laughs) And even uh, his wife was like, hey, you should reach out to the FBI if you think it's your brother. And he was like, well, uh, we don't want to. Yeah. Uh, can I take that? Yeah. Can I take the ball with that? Uh, I, one of my earliest memories growing up was a malicious standoff that happened in Montana over license plates. Some guys had some farm use trucks and they didn't put farm use plates on them because they never took them off their property. Um, and the state shit a brick about it. And they were like, you're going to have to pay for that. And militia men have a tendency to handle things with um, not a lot of uh, grace. And there was a big armed standoff about it. Yeah. That's how, that was like my introduction into life. I grew up doing uh, air raid drills for the Cold War. Ruby Ridge was very close. And it was very close in a lot of ways. A, 
Ruby Ridge, Idaho is not far physically from Lincoln, Montana. Um, they're, for those who maybe don't know, they are bordering states, but the two are very close. And when that happened, for those who don't know what happened at Ruby Ridge, um, a prominent militia figure who had probably some illegal guns didn't want to talk to uh, the ATF about it. They had a standoff, and in trying to shoot him, they shot his wife. And she had nothing to do with it, and it was brutal. And that led to a shoot-off, uh, a standoff and the shooting, which would leave everybody in that house dead. Um, and then immediately following that, you had Waco. And Waco happened because the ATF blew it at Ruby Rich because they pulled the trigger at the wrong time. They and uh, the FBI were he butting heads at Waco, and the ATF were the first ones to fire a shot there. They're the ones who shot the dog in the yard that caused the whole fucking thing in the first place. They're the ones who rode in with the tanks when they weren't supposed to. The ATF was trying to make up for that. So if you were a person, and this is something that anybody who knows any of that knows. Mm -hmm. So if you knew that, and you love this man, and you didn't think he was necessarily in the wrong, but yeah. you knew that he was in the the sights yeah. of the FBI, it would. My concern, my immediate thought when I see that is, if you think they're gonna come to his house and kill him, they're gonna kill him when they get him to jail. Yeah, like you need to help hide him and get him to stop sending bombs. You don't need to fucking turn him in. You turn him in, his life's over. Yeah. You don't turn him in, and you're worried his life's going to be over. It doesn't matter. If you snitch him out, his life's over. It's yeah. over. doesn't matter if they kill him right away. His life will not continue. Yeah. So if you're with your brother, I'm saying this probably shit I shouldn't be saying, but honestly, if you're supporting your family member, if you got in a situation like that, you can bet, and this is probably going to bite me in the ass in 10 years, but you can bet your fucking ass I would help you keep fucking hiding. Yeah. I would try to do what I could to get you to stop fucking getting attention to yourself, and I would help you keep hiding because- I would never turn you in. I couldn't turn in my any member of my family. I couldn't turn my fucking dad into the police. Are you kidding me? Fuck no. We might hate each other, but we all hate the cops. And not the men specifically and women who are police officers, but the laws that they enforce. We hate them so fucking much. No way, man. That's never yeah. happening. So while I see what they're doing, I think it was Dirty Pool. And Jill and my dad and you <laughs> and everybody else I want you to know, I would never do that. I help you keep fucking escaping. <laughs> so David tried to remain anonymous with the FBI when he submitted this stuff. But he was soon that's identified. So naive. Yeah, that's yeah. so because they're going to take him to court. Because what's wild is if like they have a big enough case, even if it's not Ted, if they got a big enough case to take him down, well, you're going to have to testify against your brother now. You're not yeah. going to be anonymous. So within a few days, an FBI agent team was dispatched to interview David and his wife with their attorney in Washington D.C. And at this and uh, meetings afterwards, David provided letters written by his brother with the original envelopes allowing the FBI task force to use the I mean, postmark dates need, yeah. to add more detail to, to their timeline of uh, Ted's activities. And David developed a respectful relationship with behavioral analysis special agent Kathleen M. Puckett, who... Does that mean they were fucking? Maybe. That's worded in a way. Like yeah. They were fucking. <laughs> uh, whom he met many times in Washington, D.C., Texas, Chicago, and New York okay. over nearly two months before the federal search warrant was served uh, on Ted's cabin. And David had once admired and emulated his older brother and had since left the survivalist lifestyle behind. And he had received a bunch of assur assurances that the FBI, that he would remain anonymous and his brother would not learn who had turned him in. Not a chance, man. Nope. Not a chance. His identity was leaked to CBS. In yeah, early fucking Dan Rather. Everybody's Twitter hero. I want you guys to know that Dan Rather was the one who wanted to snitch him out first. Yep. We can, like, I went to journalism school. I have a lot of admiration for broadcast journalism. That's a dirty fucking thing to do. Mm -hmm. And for what? So you're the first person with the story for ratings? Fuck that. Yeah. Fuck that. That's a delicate fucking issue. That's somebody's life. That's their brother. 
I'm not, you hear me talk about it all the time, but I'm not a big fan. I'm not a mainstream media fan, but especially that sort of shit. Like, what a dirty goddamn trick that is. So he called the FBI, Dan Rather called the FBI and was like, hey, we have this leak. I'm going to, I'm going to release it. The FBI was like, give us 24 hours. Because they're like, we don't even have the search warrant yet. If you put this out there, the case is gone. Do you think somebody in the FBI intentionally leaked it to try to let Ted get away? Maybe, because the FBI conducted an internal leak investigation, but the source of the leak was never identified. I wonder if it was somebody who admired what Ted was doing, and he was like, I want to give this guy the chance to get the fuck away. Yeah, um, and within the FBI, they were not unanimous in identifying Ted as the author in the manifesto. Um, the search warrant itself noted that several experts believed the manifesto had been written by another individual. Which is possible. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely possible. And we It's never been proven that there wasn't a real we there. There's, you know, there's no, there isn't a lot of hard evidence other than Ted said he did all of it. Yeah. But, I mean, if you were taking the fall for your group, wouldn't you say that? Yeah. yeah. So, on April 3rd, 1996, uh, FBI agents arrested Ted at his cabin. Uh, a search revealed a cache of bomb components, 40,000 handwritten journal pages that included bomb-making experiments, descriptions of the Unabomber crimes, and one live bomb ready for mailing. <laughs> so they also found what appeared to be the original-type manuscript of uh, Industrial Society and its future. By this point, the Unabomber had been the target of the most expensive investigation in FBI history Man. at the time. A, 2000, uh, a report that was released in 2000 by the uh, United States Commission on the Advanced of Federal Law Enforcement, stated that the task force had spent over $50 million. Dude, what a fucking waste of taxpayer money. Yeah. $50 million to find a guy who bombed, what, every 14, 15 months? Yeah. You know, and they didn't fucking find him. His brother snitched him out. Mm-hmm. If David wouldn't have been like, hey... That's my brother, Ted. Yeah. They would have never known. They never would have fucking caught him. They didn't catch him for 20 years. So after his capture, theories started emerging, naming Ted as the Zodiac Killer as yeah, well. Yeah, well, and yeah. we've talked about that on the show, but every time yeah. somebody, it's always somebody. It's, it's Ted Cruz, guys. Because <laughs> the Zodiac Killer, of course, murdered five people in Northern California from 1968 to 1969. Nice. <laughs> and one of the main links that raised suspicion is he lived in the San Francisco Bay Area from 1967 to 1969. Yeah, but he was a really nice guy. Yeah. Like, you can tell by how far withdrawn his type of murder mm-hmm. is. I don't think he was fucking shooting people who yeah. were making out on a picnic in a park. No, yeah, I don't people think People said since the gun and knife murders oh, committed by the small. Zodiac. Yeah. Ted's not very tall. He's like 5'8", right? Yeah. Yeah, he's a short king. People, people said, while the similarities are fascinating, it's purely coincidental his bombings are too withdrawn and distant yeah. than gun and knife murders, and they're like, he's not the Zodiac. Yeah, killer. man, anybody, like, that's pretty simple behavior shit, right? So he then, uh, the grand jury, indicts him on June 1996 with 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs. <laughs> using bombs. You've illegally <laughs> used these bombs. And uh, Ted's lawyers, headed by Montana federal public defender Michael Donahue, uh, Donahue, Donahue. There we go. Ooh, there we go. Man, and Judy Clark attempted to enter an insanity defense to avoid the death penalty, but Ted was like, no, I'm I'm not insane. Yeah, he's very clear about that. He's yeah. Like, I'm trying to get a point across. Because, like, to at that point, like, he'd been arrested, so if... 
all they're going to do is invalidate his fucking point now. If yeah. he's like, well, I went to all this trouble and I'm going to jail for it. I'm probably going to die. I'm definitely not going to throw my work under the bus. Because that's what some people do. Some people who plead insanity do it because they're like, well, this is your one way out. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're doing something that's politically motivated, it's very brave to say, no, I'm not fucking crazy. I was making a point. So two years after that, uh, on January 8th, 1998, he asked to dismiss his lawyers and he tired, or hired Tony Sarah as his counsel. And Sarah agreed not to use the insanity defense and instead promised to base the defense on his anti-technological views. Okay. After this request was denied, though, uh, Ted tried to kill himself on January 9th. That makes sense. Well, because he was like, I'm fucked. Yeah. yeah. And after that, they used this suicide attempt. Sally Johnson, a psychiatrist. To say that he was crazy. Yep. Concluded that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. See, and that's the shit that drives me fucking crazy. Yeah. That's not at all the case. He just knew he was fucked. Yeah. And he didn't want to have to deal with these people and their shit. Like, man, <laughs> when you're a prisoner of war, which is basically what he saw himself as, the last thing you want to do is entertain the virtues of your captors. Yeah. He doesn't give a fuck if they get what they want. He didn't want them to have it in the first place. Yeah. Like, the point he was trying to make is uh, we're advancing society too much and we're destroying the planet, which has only come to bite us in the ass since. Yeah. And their response was, oh, that guy must be fucking crazy. He tried to kill himself about it. No, he tried to kill himself because the FBI fucking arrested him. Yeah. He sent out 16 goddamn bombs that he signed, sealed, and delivered, and was like, well, they know that now. Yeah. So I should pro Also, he didn't have a lot to live for. His brother turned him in. Mm -hmm. You know, like, he didn't have friends. He didn't have a lot of close people, maybe the librarian in Lincoln. Yeah. You know, so, fuck, man. When his brother turned him in, it also gave him a reason to give up. So, despite, quote, the psych uh, psychiatric diagnosis, they said he was fit to stand trial. Um, he Prosecutors wanted a death penalty, but he just avoided that by pleading guilty to all charges. Okay. So, he pled guilty on January 22nd, 1998, and accepted life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. He got eight life sentences. Jesus. Um, he later tried to withdraw his plea, arguing it was involuntary as he had been coerced into pleading guilty by the judge. But I mean, that was true. denied. Yeah, that's true. He was coerced with the uh, either you take the death penalty or you plead guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit was like, no, we're denying your request to, to rescind that. That's dirty. And while he was serving eight life sentences without the possibility of parole at uh, ADX Florence, a supermax prison in Florence, Colorado, he made two friends. Uh, Ramsey Youssef and Timothy McVeigh, the perpetrators of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, respectively. Yep. Uh, the trio discussed religion and politics and formed a friendship which lasted. Dude, what a circle! Yeah. What a fucking blunt rotation. He went from the he went from the briefcase boys to the bomber boys. Yeah. Um, Damn, dude. Which the friendship formed and lasted until McVeigh's execution in 2001. Makes um, sense. So. In 2012, Kaczynski responded to the Harvard Alumni Association's directory inquiry <laughs> for the 50th reunion of the class of 1962. This is the funniest shit I've ever heard. Because he's a funny guy. He listed his occupation as prisoner <laughs> and his eight life sentences as his awards. <laughs> <laughs> so he's still in prison. Um, as of December 14th, uh, 2021, 79-year-old Ted was transferred from the Supermax prison in Colorado to a federal medical center in North Carolina for health reasons, um, but no one has disclosed why. Well, that means... I'm, that I'm sure it was COVID-related, probably. Probably, or... 
or it means we're going to get a sequel episode about how he didn't kill himself. Yes. Yeah. It's, I still can't get over him hanging out with Yusuf and with Timothy McVeigh. And then um, the U.S. government, of course, seized his cabin. And they did, which I brought up a little bit earlier. Dude, that was weird. They Just for everybody who doesn't know, they took the thing whole. Yeah. They just came in and <laughs> took it up off the ground, and they put it on a tractor trailer, and then they just, you can go see it in the museum. They yep. just drove it down the road. It's the wildest thing. It's like how they used to pick up the trailers in my trailer park. It was, uh, it was displayed at the Museum in Washington, D.C. until late 2019. And it's now at the FBI museum. Okay. So you can go see it. But yeah. Um, say what $50 million got us. Yeah. Yeah. And go see Ted in North Carolina while you're at it. Send him a letter. Write him a letter. I'm sure he'd <laughs> love it. Is he allowed to send letters? I don't know. Uh, one thing is um, they have decided that any of the people that were active as jury members and in the investigation won't be released. Like their information won't be released until... 2079. Oh, wow. Just for their safety. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Jeez. Look for that. We'll find that on the dark web and we'll add it to this podcast. Yeah. Throw it in at the end (laughs) as the credits. All right. Well, shit, man. That's a fucking, what a fucking tale. As I said, obviously, I'm a fan of Ted Kaczynski. I think what he did, um, I think it was virtuous in the sense that he he had, I agree with what he was trying to accomplish. I don't know that all of, I think that having better tools, modernization, as I said earlier, isn't really the end of the world. However, I do think that we've gone too far with it. And I think it's happened so fast that I understand why he was afraid. Yeah. Yeah, man. We look at how fast we've got smartphones and all this shit now. And now we've got, you know, the IRS wanting to give us face scans and all this bullshit. We went down that slope fast and he wasn't wrong. And all of that shit is bad. No face scanning, none of that stuff. None of that can exist in a real fair, just world. Yeah. So fuck, if he saw that and was smart enough and was like, well, shit, I, I got to do something about this right now. Mm-hmm. So leave, leave your thoughts in the, in the comments, please. By all means, if you want to berate me for being a fan of Ted Kaczynski, <laughs> I totally understand. And I accept that. I know that it's a little immature to be, um, as, uh, enthusiastic as I am about a guy who did kill people, but the people that he killed, while he didn't specifically aim at those people for being bad people, I think his point was, he was just trying to make a point. We're going to at some point talk about um, the Killdozer too, and just yeah. wait for that one. Caleb and I are both pro-Killdozer. We're very pro-Killdozer. Yeah, so we don't <laughs> we don't have exactly the political beliefs you might think. Some, some things are totally not fair, and I think if you're trying to protect Mother Nature and you're trying to do it, Governments aren't real. Uh, none of that stuff is real. It's all made up, and it's done so to try to keep us organized and to try to keep us in line. Ted didn't want to do that. Yeah. And he thought that all was fair in love and war because he was smart enough to see that, well, if the cops can do this and everybody else can do this, why the fuck can't I? Well, he knew that it was illegal, so he had to hide. Anyway, yeah. pro Ted Kaczynski put uh, the Unabomber on the cool crimes list. He's cool with me. Uh, the answer to last week's riddle, I guess that does put us at riddle time. Would you like yes. to close out with any thoughts? Do you have any uh, closing no, thoughts? No, no, I... Like we said, eco-terrorism, if you want to call it terrorism, just taking radical steps to take care of the earth around you because its sole purpose is to take care of you, That's it's a cool crime. Yeah, you're always on the right side. There will be no evidence ever to everyone that God exists other than Mother Earth. Yeah. And if you are religious or you believe in preserving life or the sanctity thereof, 
fuck are you are you pro life? Then you better fucking take care of your yard yeah. because that's where life began. Uh, and like I said at the beginning, you can't call yourself country if you don't care about the rivers and the streams. If you throw your fucking cigarette butts on the ground and you spit cha and you drive a diesel fucking truck, you're not country. You're a hypocrite. You're a cosplayer. You're LARPing. You're pretending to be something you're not. Us real country motherfuckers care about the earth, and we care about that water more than we care about anybody else. Yeah. So that being said, let's get into riddle time, huh? Yes. Uh, last week's riddle was your riddle. Yeah, which is, it was my riddle. I made that one up all on my own. If I had a handful of marbles, I dropped some, how many do I have left? The answer? The rest. You exactly. have the rest. Uh, that riddle is sort of, I like riddles that um, are sort of soaked in logical red herrings that are more about uh, the thought. The, the last one I did, I know in the like year we've done this, I've done two. And the other one was how far can you run into the woods? Mm-hmm. And that's halfway because after that you're running out of the woods. Same idea. So for those of you that might have got it right, celebrate yourselves. For those of you that rolled your eyes at me giving that stupid riddle, here's Caleb with his. Um, this one is a letter-by-number logic puzzle. Love it. So, how zodiac of you. There is a clothing store. The owner has devised his own method of pricing items. A vest costs $20, socks cost 25 a tie costs 15 and a blouse costs 30 Using this method... How much would a pair of underwear cost? Let us know. Leave it in the comments. We'll be happy to hear it. Uh, we love you guys. Thanks for hanging with us this time. This one's pretty long. Also, I think this is the first episode we're going to put on Rumble. So if you're watching us there, happy to see you guys. We're very pro-free speech. Yeah. And also, YouTube gives us a lot of shit for the things we talk about. And having a format where we don't have to worry about that all the time is honestly pretty nice. Yeah. So if that's where you are, it's hap- we're happy to see you guys if you're on YouTube. Happy to see you as well. We you know, can't actually see anybody. And if you're just <laughs> listening to us on Spotify or whatever, uh, please keep doing so. Yeah. I know Spotify is kind of a, we don't get paid anything, period. So yeah. we, don't, we don't mind. I know that Spotify is a very unethical company. And if you do use it, you should definitely buy the records of the people you listen to. Support them when you can on tour. Buy uh, merch. But go see their shows. We don't make any money doing any of this shit. So feel free to just listen to our podcast on Spotify exclusively if that's what you want to do. Otherwise, we love you guys. We'll see you next week. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.